Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Dr. Charles Vorster, a practicing neurosurgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. Charles has a cross-disciplinary interest in the effect of stress and risk on cognition and decision-making, and attended Yale to study for an MBA at the ripe age of 50 to pursue that interest. Our conversation covers the process of conducting surgery, offering an acute example of risk and uncertainty in a high-stakes field. We walk through making the decision to operate, preparing for surgery, overseeing a team, managing stress in the moment and over time, managing risk, assessing outcomes, and applying the lessons of surgery to other fields. 
Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Charles Borster. Charles, great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, given your occupation is quite different from a lot of the people I talk to, why don't we just talk a little bit about how you got into the field and then in particular how it led you to go to business school? Well, when I went to medical school, it was apparent to me from the first day that there were medical doctors and surgical doctors. So I felt naturally drawn to the surgeons, the decisiveness of it. And then as I progressed through the field, initially I didn't even know what neurosurgeons did. But as I learned more and had more experience, I realized neurosurgery is the ultimate for me as I thought the brain was just the ultimate and I wanted to be involved in that. The ultimate what? The ultimate object, you know, the ultimate computer. So many aspects to the brain. That just intrigued me. How long were you practicing surgeon before you decided there's something about the business of medicine that you needed to learn about? Well, quite a long time. A wise man told me years ago, if you're interested in other things, you should wait until you're 50. I don't know where he got the 50. But I was 50 when I went to business school. And the reason was I noticed that there were a lot of systemic changes in medicine. The processes, the the payment system, just everything about it became more complex. And I was interested to learn what the business aspects might be of all that. And what do you think you took away from just business school itself? Well, my first impression was I didn't realize how little I knew about all the details of business and how complex business had become. But what also struck me was that ultimately these are humans making decisions and pushing buttons and coming up with policies, and that it really is a human exercise. All right, so we're going to walk through that exercise of the whole process of someone coming to surgery and just see what comes of it in terms of parallels and decision-making processes. So I'm not sure where to start, but when you think about ultimately you have a patient in surgery, where does that process start? Yes, I'm glad you asked that way because it really does start right in the beginning. You know, when somebody gets referred to me or um, I meet somebody through the emergency department, and there's that first moment where you see a neurosurgeon, you know, and that's not something many people have done. And I try to remind myself of that. Just on a side note, my wife once said to me, have you noticed how afraid people are when they come to see you? And I said, really? Wow, I thought I was quite nice. She says, no, you're very nice as surgeons go. Have you ever thought what it feels like to go and see a neurosurgeon? And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of nervous getting a flu shot. So that's the first thing. So I spend the initial time, you know, getting to know people. I like asking them where they're from and getting to meet their family. There's usually a bunch of people in the room because, you know, the you're going to see the neurosurgeon now. And so I take time meeting everybody and finding out who this person is because, you know, sometimes I meet somebody and they're they're incapable or they're in a coma or they're badly injured. So one needs to find the context of the situation first. So that's where I start. And then, of course, from there on, it goes to finding out exactly what it was that happened because often these things are very unpredictable. You know, somebody just woke up with a headache or... They discovered their arm doesn't move or very shocking things. They had a seizure maybe or something. So the first question is often, you know, was this a fainting spell or what actually happened? So there's a lot of history taking, we call that in medicine. Taking the history, I think, is very important. And then, of course, we do neurological examinations. You know, we check pupils and strength and all of these things. And then finally, imaging. Imaging is very important to us because, of course, you can't see the brain from the outside or the spinal cord. So a lot of CT scans, MRIs, and other types of tests we do 
So then there's a lot of reviewing of the imaging. And imaging has become so complex nowadays, it's not just a picture. You know, there's different MRI techniques that show you different things, the blood vessels or the nerves or even the nerve tracts nowadays. We spend a lot of time evaluating those and then, of course, explaining all of that to the family and to the patient. Clearly, at some point in time, you have to make a decision about whether it's going to make sense to operate on someone's brain. What is the process for coming to that decision? Well, with experience, sometimes the decision to do surgery is fairly simple. So I know that the tumor has to come out or the bleeding has to be stopped. But what's not simple, of course, is to get everybody that's involved on the same page because people want to know this is the brain, as you said. So people want to know what are the risks, what could happen, what would happen if we do nothing, what are the expectations. And so quite a bit of time goes into not really even making the decision. Sometimes the decision has already been made, but getting everybody on the same page and and getting them to a point where they understand the risks and the benefits and uh, the alternatives, you know, there's a lot of things that have to go. So a lot of explaining, a lot of answering questions and so forth. And then inevitably at some point it gets to, well, this is what I recommend. And people tend to trust, you know, they expect a neurosurgeon to be an expert. And so they often... You can't expect them to make the decision. So you have to guide them along with kindness and empathy to the point where everybody's on the same page. So you started with an example of something, as you said, where it was you almost knew ahead of time. There's a tumor. It has to come out. If it comes out successfully, they're going to live a lot longer. If not, they'll have a short life. I imagine that the other side of that is there are lots of situations where it's not so black and white. So walk through that decision process. Well, maybe I can tell you a couple of anecdotes that really emphasize that. So I was called down to an emergency room once and somebody had been shot in the head, in the face, basically. I wasn't quite sure of the circumstances, but in any event, there's no time to think about all that. And here's a person and, you know, we have these teams that descend on you when you have a serious injury. So I'm the person at the head of the bed holding the patient's head in a midline position and some other people are putting in various IVs and catheters and all these kinds of things, a lot of activity. And the patient's talking to me. I'm holding his head with both my hands and my fingers at the back of his head. I'm feeling there's something bleeding or something's not right in the back of his head. And he has a small opening on his face just next to his nose on his cheek where he had apparently been shot. I assume that what I'm feeling with my fingers at the back is that the bullet went through his brain from the front to the back. And of course, I'm thinking, well, this is amazing. The person's talking to me, but this is just going to end very suddenly. And people were saying, well, everybody's done their thing and inserted their catheters and so on, and we should take him to the scanner. And I was sort of thinking, well, is this going to be beneficial? But anyway, the patient's completely lucid and in fact, he tells me he's been shot twice. And I said, well, I only see one bullet hole, but I thought maybe he's confused. Anyway, we go down to the scanner. We do the scan. And of course, he was shot twice. And as it happened, he was, it was a drug-related issue. And he was shot with special bullets that are hollow tips that actually hit the skull and stopped. So he was shot once in the front of the skull and once in the back because he ducked and then he was shot again. So the point of the story is we discharged him later the same day. So he was shot twice in the head and survived it. So you just never know what you're getting into. Let's talk about an example that's not a trauma-induced moment, but a, an example where you're gathering data 
and trying to figure out how do you assess whether or not you should go forward? Well, this is the much more common situation you're describing. And in this era of information, people often come with piles of photocopied things from the internet and various things they've read and so on. So people come very informed quite often because you can find anything on the internet, as you know. Now we have to try and explain the things, their questions, give people the opportunity to answer their questions and what it is that they want to know. And so this is a slower type of process and there's more questions and the decisions are often more complex now because in the emergency room, it's kind of a black and white thing. You know somebody has to go to the operating room now or... But in these elective situations, things are a bit more complex or different. So here one has to follow a different type of approach. My approach, once again, is to get everybody on the same page and, you know, review the scans. I like showing people nobody's really seen a brain scan. So I show them on the scan. I point out the abnormality and I I point out, you know, how we would get there and how the, all the equipment we use works. For example, the stereotactic image guidance machines that guide us to the lesions. I explain all these things to people. And then you so you get to the point where, all right, we're going to do the surgery now. And then, of course, that gets scheduled. So other people come in, nurses and assistants and so forth, and now start organizing just like any other surgery. But, of course, with a big difference, it's now the brain or the spinal cord. So you mentioned these are elective surgeries. How black and white is it when... Someone has to decide, okay, this is your recommendation. How evidence-based is that? In medicine, we're trying to be more and more evidence-based. I mean, society requires that from us. We require that from ourselves. Science requires it from us. We want to do things with data. We really want to incorporate data into what we're doing. And I think that's the way forward. However, data isn't always available, especially in brain surgery because you can't do double-blinded tests, for example, where somebody gets a placebo and some don't, and so then you can you can develop a kind of an algorithm or, or a plan for your blood pressure medication or something. So with surgery, I sometimes think we stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I can't imagine 100 years ago. Neurosurgery is, by the way, one of the newest fields in medicine. Before, not too long ago, to put it in context, CT scans were started in 1976, I believe, and MRIs around 1984. So that means before 1976, you and I were already on the planet. If there was something in your brain, we didn't really know where it was. It's very recent, actually. The information that's available now is fairly new, so we don't have long-term outcome studies yet and all the other tools of science. So we stand on the shoulders of giants where people have discovered this is what you can do and that's what you can't do. I like calling that eminence-based medicine rather than evidence-based. So eminence-based, in my mind, means if somebody with a lot of experience and skill did something, we can learn from that. We would be foolish to ignore that. On the other hand, we have to marry that with newer data and genetic testing and other things. But that's kind of the combination that we use. What are the key factors for you in making the recommendation to either go forward with the surgery or to maybe suggest there's another way without having to go ahead with the surgery? Well, it's ultimately a very human interaction, right? So for us, I think protection of function and um, maintaining quality of life is really the first thing. Before we unleash all the wonderful technology and machines and medications that we have on a person, 
we really want to just come back to basics and say, well, you know, is this really going to improve the patient's quality of life? And I'm sometimes surprised. You know, people say, well, I really don't want any of this. I'd rather spend my time with my grandchildren. And other people are the opposite. You know, it's quite surprising sometimes. They say, well, we want everything done. We don't mind if dad's on a ventilator. We would just like you to do everything because that's the kind of guy dad was. You know, he would have wanted us to... We're helped a little bit nowadays by the presence of advanced directives and living wills and so on, which makes this situation a bit simpler. But you really get the full spectrum of what people would accept. And you have to try and find out what they're willing to subject themselves to ultimately and try and be as clear as you can about what you think you can do for them. This is really a moment where you have to be honest with yourself because, I mean, we are neurosurgeons, right? So people put us on a pedestal. We put ourselves on a pedestal probably. But this is where you have to be honest with somebody and tell them and you really have to follow. The patient plays a big role in the decision-making here. So when we were talking before... You said something that really struck me, which was that, and this has to do in this area of effectively incentive alignment, where if you had a group of surgeons in a room and went through an example, and maybe 80% of them would say, yeah, I, I would recommend going ahead with that surgery. And then you ask the question of, well, what if you were the patient? Yes. And you said, oh, it's actually flipped. Only 20% of them would go ahead. Yes. Yes. Talk some about your, as the surgeon, your own personal involvement in those recommendations? That is very difficult. You know, we're all different and patients are all different. So some people are more risk averse. Others are more, um, things are often used. People say, well, I'd rather take care of something early and be done with it. For example, if you have a small, slow-growing lesion, say, in your brain, you have the option of observing this. We call it expectant observation. So you're scanning you know, the person every few months and you're seeing if they... So some people would prefer that. They would do everything not to have surgery. They're afraid and for good reasons, of course. Other people are more like, I just want this thing out. Now, of course, the difficulty is if you allow the decision completely to the patient, I mean, they're not the expert. But I tell them, listen, I'm on the blunt end of, the, of all of this and you're on the sharp end. So, I mean, you can't... You can't avoid their input and you really want it, but ultimately you have to guide them into what you think the right decision is. And there, I mean, all you can do is, would I do it myself? Sometimes people say, well, would you do this to your own family member and so on? And uh, those are just really the questions you, you go through as you're making the recommendation. So once you're going ahead with the surgery, we're now in the operating room. This is a very serious life or death situation if something goes wrong. How do you think about managing risk? Well, for us, it's all about preparation. You know, neurosurgery is one of these things where you really have to prepare properly and you have to go through the steps. You just can't afford to cut any corners. Maybe I should take you through just my own process. First of all, you know, I try to show up early on the day that I operate. We don't want to be rushing through the traffic and so forth. You know, sometimes patients ask me because we sign consent forms just before they go in. Doc, we hope you had a good sleep, you know, and it's true. So um, the preparation and the risk and all this starts with me. So I try to make sure that I'm there early and relaxed, go to the bathroom. You know, it sounds silly, but our surgeries are long, right? So we've been there for hours. Make sure you had a little something to eat. 
I've got my own little ritual I go through. I, I put on my scrubs and I'm starting to focus on the patient and not really on all the other things going on because we get calls all the time. There's lots of other patients. But now I'm trying to hone in my thoughts on this particular patient. I have a little ritual where I take off my wedding band and I tie it to my, the scrubs have sort of a drawstring on the front. So I tie my ring in there because I don't want to worry where I left it. And I turn off the pagers, you know, I tell the assistants, take your pagers and phones off and put them on the table because, you know, somebody's phone rings in their pocket when we're operating. So all these little minutiae, you might say, are extremely important when you're in the heat of the battle. And then when I go into the operating room, I walk around and, you know, there's teams of people in there. There might be 10 or 12 people in the room. And most of them I know, but there are also people, this one is a stand-in and there's a student and so forth. So I go around and I introduce myself to people and I ask them who they are. And I make sure that they know what I'm trying to do and what we're achieving. For example, somebody gets put to sleep on their back, obviously, by the anesthesiologist. But we might be turning somebody over on the, to their stomach or we would immobilize their head in a what's called a Mayfield head holder. Because for us, the approach is very important, the angle at which you go. So you can see we're not even near the surgery, and already I've told you many things. And then, of course, there's all the equipment. They open all these tables full of equipment. And so now I walk up to the people that are controlling this. You know, is the, is the microscope balanced? Is the image guidance machine ready? Is the ultrasound machine ready? Do we have the irrigating bipolar? Do we have the ultrasonic aspirator? There's so many different aspects to all of this. Do you know how it works? Is the, is the rep here that brought in this new machine we got last week in case the computer program doesn't work? So endless preparation. So now the patient's asleep probably and um, things are really getting focused. What I like to do, my little quirk, is I listen to 90s country, believe it or not because I do practice in Ohio and everybody likes country and so do I and what I find is it's it's just lively enough to keep us going but it's not too lively so 90s country everybody knows the music so we play music and it's actually been studied that makes surgeons more effective and so it's not distracting it's soothing and then we put all the imaging up because in a brain you can't look around we're operating on the brain in front of you but the imaging is on the wall or on a computer so we make sure the appropriate images are up it's kind of like having your gps on in your car you don't want to do that when you're lost and then you're not paying attention to when you're driving let me walk through some of the things you highlighted so with all of these equipment and preparation it just seems like there's a lot to do how much of that gets codified on a checklist like in a the, the classic atul Gawande manifesto and how much of it is just you know to do this well the organization i'm involved with that i work at we're very safety oriented so these checklists have been a mixed blessing for physicians of course it takes extra time and effort but we think it's worth doing so there are several several levels of this and i think it's become necessary because of the increasing complexity not only of the equipment and so forth but also because of the the team we like to think of ourselves as Teams are teams of teams, you know, so there's teams of anesthesiologists and teams of everybody involved. And so you have to make sure that everybody's on the same page. And so this checklist era is, I think, here to stay and ever expanding. So it starts with what we call the huddle. So we at the, before the patient's asleep and some families around the bedside, we do a huddle 
where we make sure that you actually agree that the surgery you're having is the one that you thought you were having and so we go over that so that's the huddle and we make sure we know any details about you that might be forgotten everybody forgot the allergy or something and then when you're asleep before we do the surgery we stop and we call this you know the timeout and the idea of the timeout is that everybody in the room stops what they're doing because there's constant activity so during this timeout, usually led by the surgeon or somebody that I say, well, why don't you do the timeout? We go through, well, this is, you know, the patient's name and this is what we're doing and is this ready? Is that plugged in, etc. Has the antibiotics been given? Do the compression stockings work? All these other things that might have nothing to do with actually a procedure, but all the parts of it that's important. And then in the middle of the case... If we do different implants or things, we have a pause with the operating room team. So we'll say, okay, everybody confirm this is what we're implanting. This is the expiration date, these kinds of things. And at the end, there's the last one. So there's four. There's a sign out where we say, well, what we did was this. And we put this drain was inserted, which is going to drain afterwards. And the patient received this blood product or didn't and there was a specimen that needs to be sent to pathology or did somebody actually do that or has it been sent and then we end off with is there anything we could have improved or done better or i'm annoyed that my drill was a little blunt or make sure that gets sent in for so there's four levels of these checklists in my situation so a couple little things here the country music super important is there any Science, you mentioned that it's soothing. Do you listen to the same music? Do you vary it? And what's the impact of that? Well, sometimes I have little quirks to, because remember there's a team and I'm the leader of the team for these few hours that I'm in the room. And so I have to make sure that all these people are motivated and attentive and so forth. So I try to read the room. Sometimes we talk about, I mean, we're human. We're talking about, you know, how was your weekend or something, but when there's a serious part of the case, usually, for example, when we bring the microscope in, I would say, well, turn the music off. You know, let's just get everything ready now. So then we stop, and now equipment's being moved around. We turn the music off, and, you know, oh, somebody's standing in for somebody else who had to go for their lunch break. Well, who's this? Okay, what are we doing now? And so on. So that's when we stop the music. And then sometimes at the end of the surgery, I have this little quirk where I – I put on the old song by Roy Rogers, Happy Trails to You, because that's sort of an old-fashioned ring to it, and it's, it has a certain time. And I said, all right, guys, come on, you have to get done before the end of the song, you know, with putting all the things away. And so that puts everybody in a jolly mood. Over the course of the many surgeries you've done, how much variability do you think you have in your own performance? It does vary. We know that. It's hard to measure specifically. But you know on some days, you know yourself, you might not feel as sharp or something like that. And you have to be more careful. Now, fortunately, we work together, you know, so assistants and other people will ask you, you know, you look a little, don't you want to go out and have a cup of coffee or something? That happens rarely, but those are more the extremes that everybody can notice or somebody's just annoyed or they're going through some personal things or they're just recovered from illness or something, you know. So I think those things are well taken care of. The part that's more nebulous is how do you know that somebody you know is just going through the motions or whether they're really involved and so on and my way of making sure about that is 
also just small little things. Sometimes when I operate on people, I talk to them, even though they're asleep. So I'll say, come on, Ted, help me out here. Stop bleeding or something. So it's just a maybe a silly way, but to remind me that the patient that's there under all these drapes is actually a person, of course. But you know, in the mayhem of it all, one can easily, and that tends to focus your thoughts and makes you remember. Measuring variability, we look at outcomes and, of course, Big hospital systems, all hospitals have systems that can look at outcomes. We have what's called, they used to call them M&M conferences, which meant morbidities and mortalities where if things go wrong, you know, people discuss and, I mean, really do root cause analysis and all kinds of things. And there's processes that go through. And if if somebody's thought to have done something, and we don't wait for things to go wrong. We even try and get what we call near misses or... Uh, anything then we review that and we say well maybe next time we should do this or we shouldn't have done that and obviously if somebody's outside of the circle then that gets referred to the content expert basically so if it's a neurosurgical problem then that section head will look into it and maybe talk to that person or recommend that they go for a refresher or something or are they having problems maybe you should take a week off or something like that everything sounds super smooth not just from the soothing tone of your voice but no, you know, talk about all this right all of these processes and and you have to think okay when you're going through a multi-hour procedure and you don't exactly know what will happen there's all kinds of like, modifications how do you work your way through that process as things don't go as you might have anticipated? Well, things happen, yes. The main thing in neurosurgery, it's kind of a thing we say. I don't know where I heard this first, but one of my mentors told me, first we set the table and then we eat. And, you know, it sounds sort of simple maybe, but it's very true, especially in a field like neurosurgery, because most of the surgery, if you say four hours, there's maybe a half an hour in the middle where the really the important things happen. So there's a lot of opening and positioning and all that. And at the end, there's a lot of closing again because we're going in. It's not like a mole on your skin, you know. So there's a whole approach and then going out again. So the best way to avoid these spikes and a sudden bleeding or, oh, the anesthesiologist has some concern or whatever things happen is the preparation is extremely important. That's where this let's set the table thing. So you can't afford to rush into, because you know, the devil would love this. Once we're at the important part, that's always when it starts bleeding, or that's when the phone rings in your assistant's pocket, or that's when maybe we overemphasize it, but I don't think you can overemphasize it because it just hedges your bets, basically, that when you get to the point where something does happen, at least you have the first 80% covered. Now then when it does happen anyway, you still have the last 20%, but at least you're in a better situation. And even an experienced surgeon like myself, I mean, you do feel the little rush of adrenaline. And as you're holding the suction and it's bleeding everywhere and, you know, you can't see, you feel the little tremor in your hand and so on. And that's when you just have to stop because, of course, you're the leader, right? So everybody else is watching and they're even more nervous. And then we usually now go again through our, okay, Let's get second suction. Let's have the temporary clips. Turn off the music. You keep quiet, please. These kind of things. So once again, you have to stick to your process as well as you can. And at this point, you have to remind yourself, okay, what are we doing here? And this is where we try and, say, and then say, well, all right, rather than harm this person, maybe we should pull back a little bit. 
let's leave the last little bit of the tumor. We always say most accidents happen near home, you know, so don't go after that last little, just stop before things really get bad. And that's hard to do for a surgeon. You know, we train to, we're in there, we're going to do the job completely, but you have to then force yourself to say, stop. And that's where you're back once again to the original preparation where you, you have to have a clear plan of what it is you're doing. Otherwise, if you're constantly changing or sort of winging it, as people say, that's when you get in trouble. Whereas if you have a plan, it's easier for you to stick to the plan. You mentioned something in talking about that that was sort of direct accountability to someone on your team where you said, you are doing this. Are there lessons that you've learned over your experience or tricks that you employ that help you manage the team of people around you? Well, I think what happens in the operating room, there are people of different ages, backgrounds, different levels of education, and we're all wearing masks and hats. It's kind of an interesting situation, but we're all in the room and there's one patient. And so you have to get people from completely different backgrounds on the same page now including with the music i mean i sometimes well you obviously won't like country music and if somebody people will say no i hate country music well then we listen to reggae or something when it comes to the point of accountability i think the idea for me anyway is to have people understand ownership of what they're doing because even if you're the guy that just goes and gets stuff every time the nurse needs something that's very important because you know where is the gel foam well, Bob ran out to go get it from the, oh, where is he? You know, how long is it going to take? But if Bob realizes he's off to go get it and we're waiting for him, you know what I mean? And maybe he thought already before, he knows Dr. Worcester wants to, we will know where it is. So I think ownership is the answer. And as our teams and the complexity gets bigger, that becomes more and more of a challenge because people are switching out, people are on breaks, people go on holidays. So I think the ownership of actually knowing who the patient is and introducing in the beginning, some of the timeouts we introduce, this is Sally, she's the scrub tech, and this is John, the rep from some company, and this is Dr. whatever from China who's visiting us today, and this is... So when we do that, everybody seems to have ownership, and that ultimately, I think, is really the the way of getting them to do their job, I guess. Are there other tools that you've figured out over the years and how to make surgeries more successful? One way of making it, this is kind of an indirect question, is defining your metrics better. Because, I mean, what is a successful operation? So we've gone through this, for example, uh, let me give an example. Like, let's say with back surgery. We all know you just have to go to a barbecue and there will be somebody who had back surgery. Either they're very happy or they've had seven surgeries. So in other words, the metric of what you use of what success is. So if surgeons use the metric, you know, there's a, a solid fusion that has been achieved with instrumentation. That metric might not directly translate into what the patient was hoping for, which was to play tennis with his children or something. And we're becoming a bit more aware of that. I think in previous eras, we were more interested in achieving the surgical result. The tumor is out, but oh, by the way, the patient can't, you know, there's some dysfunction or something, or the fusion is done, but the patient still has pain. Because we do the surgery successful, but the point is to marry the success that you're measuring as a professional to the patient's expectation. How do you go about the process of learning and growing as a surgeon? 
you have to keep in touch with your colleagues. You can't be isolated. If you get isolated, you know you're always at risk of of drifting a little bit this way or that way. Now, no two surgeons do something exactly the same. There is a circle. There's not a dot, as I like to say. But, I mean, this circle is well-defined. So uh, I go to a lot of conferences. I listen. I speak. I teach. I learn. And in all of these processes, you know, you... You're constantly testing yourself. It's an international family. There aren't that many neurosurgeons in the world. So when I speak to colleagues from Brazil or India or South Africa, they may know things that, or they may have encountered something that I haven't. So it's a lot of communication. We also like doing conferences where there's a small group because large conferences are not always personal. So we sometimes have small conferences and then we share things that went wrong or complications, which requires trust and honesty and transparency. That, that I find quite helpful at the stage in my career because once you feel you've mastered the subject and you know most things that's available, you learn from other people because there aren't that many mistakes or errors or improvements, so you can learn from other people. I find that very helpful. How have you managed yourself through those unfortunate mistakes and maybe take me back to sort of the first thing that comes out in your mind of a procedure that you felt was unsuccessful. On a serious note, I've had two colleagues who've committed suicide over bad outcomes on elective surgery where somebody goes in and has some type of complication. Unavoidable, there's no real malpractice involved, but things happen. It's neurosurgery. So these things are very, very difficult. So one has to understand the field you're in. But the way I cope with it is well, there is also a humorous side to this, believe it or not. When I first started operating in the U.S., you know I'm South African. I have a bit of an accent, you know. And for us, when the patient wakes up, that's the moment when you see whether they can still talk and move and so on. Whereas maybe with some other types of surgeries, they just have to wake up from their anesthetic. And I would go up to somebody and say, well, show me two fingers, squeeze my hand or something, and no response. And then somebody with an American accent came to the patient and said the same when they would do it. <laughs> so that's kind of a scary moment for you. So I've learned to ask the anesthesiologist to give the commands because maybe the patients understand them better. But if things go wrong, you're right. And I think the uh, one has to have a way in which you handle this because you have to think not only of the unfortunate person, of course, and the incident, but you have to think of people you're going to be operating on next week and next month. And once you become fearful or hesitant by something that happened to you, it's a disservice not to the patient that was on the receiving end of the problem, but also to other people that now are dealing with a hesitant surgeon. Or you know, So that's quite difficult to not let previous things affect your future performance as well as you can. And the only way you can do that is back to what I said in the beginning about this very extensive preparation and sticking to the plan is very important because then when things go wrong, and you get to the point where you're questioning and you're laying awake at night staring at the ceiling and feeling terrible and not talking to your wife and you know just not wanting to go to work tomorrow. It's an awful feeling. You can find some solace in the fact that you stuck to your plan and that you did the right thing. And despite all of that, things can still go wrong. And if you didn't and something went wrong, the very least you can do or maybe the most important thing you can do is to learn from it. And that's where the the eminence based and then share that with your colleagues so that we don't all have to go through it. The concept of 
you need to separate what happened and then move forward because you have important work to do going forward. Feels quite different from the emotion of being triggered in that. How did you learn, or is it still a process of learning, to make that effective for your future patients? I'll answer it in two ways. First of all, our emotions and our adrenaline rush and our adrenal glands and all of these things, the stress response, the fight and flight response, you can't avoid these things. So no matter who you are and how expert you are at what you do, you will feel it. I think the most seasoned professionals in all fields, including mine, you will still feel that adrenaline rush. You can't, you can't unlearn that. You recognize it when you feel it. The first time you experience that, you it kind of shocks you. You know, you say, well, I never thought I'd feel a little shaky now. So that helps a little bit. And then understanding it, you can't avoid it. So I sometimes tell people, okay, mandatory walk around. That's what I say. And then I step away from the microscope and I walk around the room for what feels like an eternity, but it's maybe five seconds or something, you know, and then I just walk back. So uh, that's the way of coping with the, the emotional rush, which is basically a chemical reaction in our body that we can't, we just can't escape. You can't unlearn it. I think some people have learned to turn that to their advantage you know, in, in other fields where they use that rush or the aggression or something to their advantage. Now, in my field, that's not really applicable. So you have to just allow it to overcome. The other part is the more the longer term thing. How do you learn to cope i find solace in nature you know i like walking around outside and just seeing beauty and coordination of everything and you know noticing detail paying attention to detail you see a bird and you know as we get older the world becomes gray we have to look at the, the world with a childlike kind of so attention to detail Along with that goes a sense of gratitude sometimes that that induces where one then sort of count your blessings, count them one by one kind of thing that helps me to refocus, just get back to the reference point kind of thing. My family helps me a little bit with that. My dogs, you know, just simple things. My faith helps me. So different things like that where you just reset the zero, basically. I don't think that's thing that you can sit and do in your office. You need other things that you can lean on and count on. From your friendships that you developed while you were in business school, I know you have a bunch of friends that are involved in the financial markets. What have you learned about the application of what you do to investing and vice versa? Well, it was fascinating to me. Um, the best friend I made, Roger Bowler, is a seasoned trader for many years. And we discussed these things. He asked me many of the same questions you've asked me, and I asked him questions. I noticed there were a lot of similarities between making decisions under stress and what Roger called the teacup, the thinking clearly under pressure. And so I think this is a, a commonality between some aspects of finance and perhaps surgery. Uh, the big difference was that uh, I noticed in my field there were these absolute, you know, people die, markets go back and forth. Uh, there was one difference. There was also perhaps a more uh, accessible scientific base to medicine, whereas finance and economics are often based on theory and on retrospective type of analyses and long-run averages and things like that. So there was another difference. 
but there were definitely commonalities in that humans were doing both of these activities and humans are susceptible to the same temptations, struggles. So I enjoyed knowing that there were other fields that had the same kind of, because that made me feel, well, I understand what they're going through and maybe we could learn from each other and throw ideas around and see if we could improve our respective practices. As you mature in your career, you know, there's certainly certain aspects of finance, maybe you think of more the trading, that there is a finite half-life of someone's career. Maybe a certain type of trader is more like a, a football running back, and others maybe more like, a, I don't know, a tennis player that has a longer career. And I imagine it's the same in surgery. How do you think about the trajectory of your career as a surgeon and when are you at your optimal point? When is it sort of a natural time to start thinking about stepping away for the interests of future patients? Yeah, I think there is differently. I think we all are subject to a lifestyle. You know, I think our modern society, we, we worship youth and vitality and all these things. And I mean, those are valid things to strive for. But I think there is a time in our lives where we more the young guns are, you know, pushing and we only do new procedures and try new things. And I think there should be a counterbalance to that where maybe more seasoned practitioners are saying, well, you know, we did that in the 60s and this didn't work and we learned this and so on. So I think a healthy balance, I think that healthy balance might be going a little bit currently, in my opinion, because there's a lot of this fourth industrial revolution, as people call it, there's a lot of technology and people are hoping that technology will just solve everything. But I think there is a healthy balance, as there always was, between seasoned practitioners and young guns. So I think one has to recognize in which phase you are. And as you move along and you may be getting more towards the seasoned practitioner, like I guess I am, that you should share what you've learned with younger people, but also be open-minded for what they and remember how you were so I think but there is definitely a life cycle to it and then of course the second part of your question of course people always ask are you shaky you know are you getting older can you see well and so on and these things are true I've noticed that I'm I'm less tolerant of being called in the middle of the night and then having to operate tomorrow again when I was a resident before the work hour restrictions and these things we would just go for 48 hours and and my body could tolerate that. My body becomes less. So, I mean, and we all have different health issues, perhaps, or different things. So, I think there has to be a realization that there's a point that's maybe. Now, it's difficult to define in surgery because many older surgeons act as assistants, or maybe they're taking some call but not then operating the next day, or maybe they're doing consultations and letting the surgery be done by younger people. So there are different career options. I wouldn't propose that surgeons should stop operating at 60 or 70 or 80 or something. You know, I have some colleagues that are amazing, people near their 80s that are still doing smaller surgeries and, and so forth. So I don't think there's a clear answer to it. One has to be realistic with yourself. And people find... We all move laterally later in life, I think. So some physicians are finding themselves in, um, I'm spending one day of the week you know, on various committees and research and so forth. So it's kind of a day from, from a physical point of view where you're not physically stressed, perhaps. So I think that's a nice transition as one moves into leadership or management or entrepreneurial activities or different things that people do. The technology is becoming increasingly pervasive across all different industries. And you know, I know 
you hear a little bit about sort of the intuitive surgical robots or certain types of procedures. Where do you see technology coming in to your field? Well, I think some of the most exciting fields in neurosurgery is the whole concept of brain-machine interface. So people are interested at several levels. The most advanced of these has been um, deep brain stimulation or spinal cord stimulators, which have been aimed at certain types of disease like dystonia or Parkinson's and so on, and also to chronic pain and so forth. So this, this ability to use stimulation and the technology that enables it has been a, a big change. And I think the horizon there would be, there are fascinating studies where uh, it has been found, for example, that the area in front of the motor region in the brain called the supplementary motor area gives a signal before you move. So uh, researchers are working on harvesting that. So if you're thinking of moving your arm, it hasn't moved yet. You know, that signal can then uh, transmit into a receptor, which then can stimulate your exoskeleton, sort of like Iron Man, or maybe directly on the muscle, so that people can think about moving their arm and then move it, or perhaps move a cursor or something like that. The more provocative things have to do with uh, trying to see what people are thinking, which, of course, that's quite nebulous to see if you can make somebody think better or be smarter or think faster or something. There are some very interesting entrepreneurial activity out there, but it's in its infancy still. I don't think computers are going to take over the world. I think humans will always be in control, but I think uh, there's a lot of excitement about using what computers can do for us. And along with predictive analytics, deep learning, these are the fields I think that will impact us as well. Let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? For me as a South African, I mean, I love swimming in the ocean and having a barbecue outside. I like being outside. And I've learned to ski a little bit since being here in a different part of the planet. Being around water in general is just fun for me. And just observing, as I said, nature and being with my dogs, this has a profound effect on me. And whether I'm walking through it or cycling through it or swimming in it, that's really the main thing. And then I do some sport, but you know, you have to have your stiff back and your sore knee taken into consideration. But I play squash with my son and we play a lot of golf. I like that. We play table tennis when we're at home when it's cold outside. Those are kind of the main things I like doing, physically anyway. How do you think about the risk of hurting yourself? And as it affects your ability to perform. That's kind of a funny topic in our home because my wife, I like fooling around with my chainsaw and, you know, cutting down brands. And so you really shouldn't be doing that. You're a neurosurgeon, you know, and many of my friends are horrified when I do these things. And I say, well, you know, I use other more dangerous power tools. (laughs) But I do think about it a little bit. I don't like sticking my fingers in things or getting things in my eyes and so on. And I've learned as I get older, your body reminds you, even if you're not thinking of it, you know, you need to, if your back hurts, well, you know, don't do that again because tomorrow when you're operating, you know, you're not my temper, your performance. So I'm just a little bit more aware of not doing things where I'm hurting myself unnecessarily. All right, what's your biggest pet peeve? As I'm getting older now, I'm more perhaps in your world where there's lots of meetings and discussions and so on. And Something that strikes me as, it always annoys me, is when there's meetings and people aren't prepared or they don't stick to the agenda. 
and all the variations of that. So meetings and uh, meetings that go over time or people that don't show up on time, or that's really something that annoys me. What reading do you almost never miss? Well, I read my Bible. Well, I don't know if people are offended by that, but that's what I do. I like reading books about philosophy and history. So I have my wife, once again, you know, they're ultimately our thermometer that keeps an eye on us as they, or our spouse, I shouldn't say my wife, our spouses. In any event, on my book stand, there's always 10 books. And usually about three of them are about the mind and the brain. And maybe there's two or three that's the current reading that we all read. And then there's usually some books on faith-based issues and religion in general that interests me. What have you learned recently that most struck you? Well, not recently, but what I've learned is that people have become more and more distracted. It's fascinating when you, if you just go to a dinner with people, I've realized that most people are not paying attention, basically. People are extremely distracted. I don't know if it's a sign of our times or stress or cell phones or... Or maybe it's always been like this. But it's very noticeable to me that people are not remembering, hearing, or listening, or internalizing, and talking past each other. And hearing actually requires a bit of mental work. You know, seeing of the perceptive senses, seeing goes straight in. You just see things without it. You don't have to decide to see something. But hearing, you have to decide to listen to somebody. And doing that and not just thinking of what you're going to say back and so on, it requires a bit of mental work. And that is something that I've really noticed as I communicate with colleagues or with you or with patients or with anybody, to try to speak concisely and clearly and to try and listen as well as I can. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My dad passed away about two years ago. And as it goes with sons and dads, sometimes, you know, we played a lot of golf and so on, but there's not a whole lot of talking going on besides maybe a birthday card and so on. But he wrote me a note which has become quite precious to me. And on the note, he says, uh, Dear Charles, I love you. You know, I'm proud of you. And then he says, Take care of your stuff. Uh, you know, in one line, Beware of debt and time will tell. Love, Dad. And, you know, um, <laughs> initially when I read that, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, you know. It's this moment where your dad imparts his wisdom on you. But this idea of taking care of your stuff and avoiding debt and uh, time will tell actually has a lot of wisdom as you ponder on it. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I wish earlier in my life I paid more attention to detail. I wish I could remember more about things I did or that I wish I appreciated things more. If I think back now on a ski trip or on this or on that, I wish I could remember more detail and I wish I paid more attention because life is short and time whizzes by and before you know it, the children are grown up and you know everything goes so fast. So I wish, I wish that much earlier in life I was more grateful and more attentive and more um, appreciative of things around me so that when I get older and sit on, the, sit on the porch, I had more to think back on. Charles, thanks so much. It was really fun. Well, it's been pleasant. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 